Hi everyone and welcome back to the Parma podcast. I am Jade Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Um, great to have you all again here listening. And uh, have a returning guest today and I'm really excited about this episode. Um, I loved talking to her last year and now she's back. Um, Amanda Held Opelt, welcome back to the show. James, it's really good to be back with you. It's always fun to have a conversation with you for sure. Yeah, yeah. One of your podcasts was one of my favorites of last year. Um, the conversations we had around around grief and um, yeah, the shared experiences that we 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 we've had. Um, it was uh, it was quite powerful for me, and I think it meant a lot to other people who listened as well. So, um, mm. um, and now you've written a book about grief uh, and rituals of grief called "A Hole in the World." So tell us a bit about that. Well, it's the title's based on an Edna St. Vincent Millay quote. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her writing, but the quote goes something like, when you died, you left a hole in the world that I kept circling around in the day and falling into at night. And I was just really compelled by that, um, that quote. And um, yeah, essentially the book is kind of part history, uh, part personal reflection, I guess a little bit of memoir about my own losses and, and then, um, some, some scriptural reflections, you know, a person of, of faith. And so some, some reflections on what I feel like the Bible actually has to say about grief that I never learned in Sunday school per se, uh, has a lot to say actually. Um, and so that, yeah, the book's, kind of all of those things. And I, in it, I explore 12 historic rituals of grief. Um, most of the rituals have been kind of lost to time and history and are no longer practiced in a mainstream way, though there are a few that are still practiced that I explore the history of. But primarily, they're, they're, they're grief rituals that have died out. And just kind of what was it about the, what did those rituals stir in me in my own healing journey uh, and kind of my reflections on them. So um, yeah, that's, that's the book. It, I just finished the copy edits this week. And so it's, <laughs> I, and no one ever told me, and you know this, James, you're a writer, but no one ever told me that like 90% of writing is editing, <laughs> um, which is fine. I enjoy editing. Um, it's, it's, it's okay. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and hopefully it's yeah. The- yeah, that's true. Yeah, very, very true. You yeah. get it. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I know. It took me much longer to edit my book than it did to write it. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, right. I was yeah, it, for sure. It was just, it's just emails back and forth all the time, right? You ch- change what you're going to write this to change this or take this out or you repeated yourself or, you know, all of that. It's, it's yeah. ages. It's kind of laborious, but. Um, yeah. Well, and as a new writer myself, I like it's it it can't ever be good enough in my mind. Like so, every time I turn in a manuscript, they send back a few little edits, which is great, so helpful. But then I send them like ten more massive edits that I've just decided this wasn't good enough. Let's make it better. And at some point, I'm sure every writer has experienced this. At some point you have to say like, it's going out into the world as it is. And I know that it could probably be better, but I have to kind of accept where it's at. So, um, so yeah, that it's, it'll be released in July of this year. And um, 
it's it's actually available for pre-order right now, which is pretty cool. So, um, but yeah, that's exciting. I'm really excited to read it. Um, Thanks when it comes out. Um, yeah, I think these kind of things are really really important. Really needed. Um, we touched on, when you came on last time. We touched on a little bit on rituals of grief and why they're important and and why we need them. Uh, and so, what was what was kind of your journey into discovering some of these rituals? I mean, what were the ones that really kind of grabbed hold of you, and how how did that? Yeah. Happen? Well, I, you know, I shared last time that I had just had a series of of losses in my life of people that were close to me, or um, three lost uh, pregnancies, which was just had a big impact on me. But I felt like you know, everyone says you need to process your grief. Well, I, I'm not even sure I knew what that meant. And and, and I, I felt like I was lacking in some kind of tool or something to really help me process what I was going through. Um, and like every other, you know, I think American millennial, I'm, my life is busy, right? Like busy with, with work, family obligations. And so there, there was just so little time for me to really mentally journey through and emotionally journey through how these losses had impacted me. But I just knew that I felt like I was going crazy. I felt like I was going completely mad. I was angry. I was depressed at times. I was confused. I was anxious. I knew there was a lot going on internally, but I didn't know really how to to process it well. And so I, I guess I guess the algorithm on Facebook or something knew that I was in grief. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how it knows, but it it, it popped up an article about um, kind of like unique or crazy or bizarre grief rituals from around the world. Um, and I just you know clicked on it, and um, I just thought, wow, it's really interesting. Like certainly other cultures have a lot of grief rituals, communal rituals intact for the burying of the dead, the mourning of the dead. Um, But even Western cultures, European cultures had some of these rituals in the past, but they no longer exist. They're no longer widely practiced. And I just became really intrigued by that. Like, why have we lost our rituals? Um, and, and one ritual in particular is what really sent me, I think, down this path. And that was the, the practice of Irish keening, which is essentially just communal wailing at a wake where they would have these, essentially they had lead keeners or women in the community whose role it was, was to keen or to cry, to wail at funerals. And interestingly, these women often served as midwives in the community as well. So they kind of brought people into the world and then they escorted them out as they died, essentially. Um, And so, yeah, they would, they would go, these keeners would go to a wake and they would begin kind of singing about the person, but the singing was a mix of crying, of screaming, of words, of, of moans. And, and eventually the whole room, the whole community that was present in the room would just start crying and wailing, um, kind of in this, uh, um, improvised impromptu song slash scream. And, and it, it basically, it just gave people permission to fall apart. It gave people permission to just be completely devastated 
publicly together in community. Uh, and, and I just found that so intriguing. And so I, I listened to a couple podcasts about it. I checked out some books from the library to read about it. And I was hooked. And I was like, what what else did they do? What, what else is there? Because this is rich. If I had been given permission to do this, this it would have helped me, you know? And so that's, that's kind of the, that's the, that's actually the first ritual that I write about in the book. Um, but then the others follow from there. Yeah. That sounds like an amazing ritual. I, this kind of idea of wailing, mm. there is a, I, I, I've talked to other people about grief for this show. And one of the people I talked to um, talked about, uh, how when her mother died, there was this kind of moment where she just collapsed on the floor and screamed. And right. It, and it wasn't anger, it was grief. Yeah. Like this wailing thing. And and I remember, you know, from um, when I when my mother died, I had a lot of, of that. I just wanted to scream, just wanted to. Yeah. And it wasn't anger even. It was just like I have this stuff in me. I want to get out of my body. Yeah. This is just bad. This is this should not have happened. I don't want this to happen. They're gone. Like, um, and I am in pain. Um, and it's just that's what it is. And so, to to be to have to do that to have that kind of organised in that way is really powerful. Um, I mean, to be able to participate in that as well would be yeah amazing like for a loved one you know when you've lost someone um yeah, and yeah. it seems like interestingly we're, we're most we're kind of um praised in our culture especially i don't know you can speak to british culture better than i can american culture you're kind of in some ways praised for being strong for kind of keeping it together and you think like if someone were to just start wailing at a funeral, like just in a very disruptive way, people would be like, Oh, are they're not handling this? Well, they're not okay. Whereas I think the Irish at that time would have seen it the opposite. Like if you're not wailing, then maybe you're not okay. You know? And, and there's just kind of this, this expectation that people in grief are going to, um, that, 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 that kind of um, visceral reaction, like you said, that that kind of expelling the darkness, if you will, of screaming, of just anger, that, that that's meant to be done in private and it shouldn't be done communally, certainly, because um, you don't you wouldn't want to make people uncomfortable. And, and I, it, that's just so unhealthy. I mean, it's very, very unhealthy to expect the grieved to, to keep those feelings inside of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting because as I read, it turns out a lot of cultures have wailing as part of a grief ritual and it's very, very biblical. In fact, um, there's this, some great uh, passages in, in Jeremiah that talk about God summoning the wailing women um, as like a, you know, part of the, the repentance of Israel, a, a part of Israel kind of, um, grieving over the injustice that's been done, grieving over the lives lost that they've experienced. And God actually calls these women um, knowledgeable and wise and skilled. Like he calls it a skill to be able to wail. And so we live in this culture that sees, tends to maybe see the, um, the emotions of women as a liability, <laughs> whereas mm. God sees them as a holy asset you know, they're, they're kind of the communal therapist, if you will. They're, they're the, 
prophets, the, the mm. prophetess. They are the, the the keeper of the knowledge of the memory of what's been lost. And he he lauds these women. He extols these women and even compares himself to one in Jeremiah. And so I was like, okay, well, this is biblical. How can we, as a church, how have we lost this ability? You know, so... Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually remember being told when around the time my mother died, oh, like, people respected me for being strong, mm. right? And I was, and I kind of played that role. I was, because I thought that was my job. I'm, I was the eldest, so yeah. I had to be strong for everybody else. Everyone else could get fall apart, and I had to take care of everybody else. But that was my assigned role, um, which I didn't cry. Like I said this for many times, I didn't cry. For ten days, mm. wow! Um, and then I cried a lot, and then I buried a lot of it in anger. Like I didn't cry again much for a long time after that. Um, yeah, and it was like, oh, you're being so strong, and it's like it was like a compliment, but it actually it was it wasn't healthy at all. It was it was uh, it was burying it all and just yeah. like internalizing it and making it worse. Um, right. Rather than giving it voice and expression, like it's, yeah, like I mean, in British culture as well, it's kind of stiff up a lip and mm. you know, kind of you have the funeral and then you, that's it, you move on. Like and you know, I mean, like I mean, here's an example. I, I when my mother died, um, I was working, you know, I had a job and um, obviously I had time off and everything when mother, my mum died and to sort everything out and I came back and they said that oh you've got to take it as annual leave mm. like not compassionately right and my dad actually had to ring the chairman of the company I worked for and tell him like basically you this is not acceptable um, right <laughs> and get it changed yep. to compassionate leave like that's how bad we are at dealing with this stuff right it's it's. I mean, I think also I was working at a very bad company, so they weren't very good at that kind of thing anyway. But, but it just shows you that people think they can get away with that, and you know, they're just like, you know, when you lose somebody, when you lose a loved one, there's they just take as much time as they need. That's it. There should be just no questions asked. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's um, it, yeah, we've just lost that. We just somehow forgot how to grieve right right and you know i think that i do think different people have different grief reactions like it you know it's it's normal to wail and it's normal to be numb and not feeling anything at all you know and we all i mean they i've I've read some of the psychology i I make this disclaimer in the book i'm not a historian i'm not a psychologist so i want to be careful about making any kind of sweeping statements about what's psychologically normal but from what i've read this kind of oscillation between like despair and just um, overt grief and then numbness and ignoring the problem and stuffing the problem down, that's actually pretty normal. And in some ways it's our brain's way of protecting us from just the constant exposure to the pain. But what I love about a ritual of grief is that it it makes space for every expression of the grief and, and affirms every expression of the grief. And so, yeah, you may be a person that more naturally numbs, ignores, stuffs it down 
But if you're able to go and participate in a keen, then it gives you every opportunity and affirmation for if that needs to come out, you know, um, and it, it, it kind of, in some ways it, it regulates, it gives us, um, it gives a script for that processing. It gives a, a, a timetable and a, and a communal, um, I guess, um, yeah, just placeholder for the, the wide variety of emotions that we're going to experience and, and uh, communally affirms it. I think that's kind of the most important thing um, is that it, it communally affirms every form of response to a significant loss. Mm, yeah, yeah. And what rituals do, I think, is, I mean, I've talked a lot about how we need to learn to move in and out of our pain without letting it have power over us. Right. And, um, and what rituals do is allow you to do that. They yes. allow you to go into your grief. They allow you to feel it and experience it and express it and acknowledge mm-hmm. it exists. Um and even let it shape you in some way, but without it ever having power over you. That's and right. Then you, to, then you can you come out of the ritual and then you leave that, and you can go back into it when you're ready to do that. And so it, right. it doesn't numb it, it doesn't hide from it, it doesn't brush over it like certainty does, but it just right. but it allows you to feel it and pro- do work on it and do the healing stuff, but on your own terms. Um, yeah in a way that is helpful for you that's i think that that that's what healthy grief rituals can do yeah yeah i agree i agree um one of the other ones that you mentioned um and which i've heard of before um is um a jewish one i think um shiva so tell us a bit about that one yeah yeah. So I will say that one thing I tried to do in in the book is there there are obviously countless grief rituals from other cultures and around the world that I could have delved into. But I, I wanted to be careful about, um, A, like not appropriating. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to be careful because I was allowing um, I was kind of allowing the ritual to speak to me individually. And so if I didn't have like kind of a broader understanding of the, the, the cultural context, I just wanted to be careful about that. But the other reason I explored primarily rituals from either Western or Abrahamic faith traditions was because that's my culture. Like I grew up in, in a Western culture. My DNA mm-hmm. test shows that I am primarily of uh, Western descent. Um, primarily. Um, and so, I, I, but I wanted to know, okay, why have we, why don't we have grief rituals? Why do so many other cultures, why have they maintained them and practiced them communally together? And we in the West don't. So I was kind of trying to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. Um, but one ritual that I explored that, yeah, one that I explored that was probably, that was kind of outside of my cultural context of my growing up was Shiva. And I just, I, I was really blessed to have a friend um, who's Jewish and grew up in Israel. She's been a friend of mine for a while, um, speak to me about what it was like to experience Shiva growing up. Um, she, uh, and, and she's given me full permission to tell her story, which was so generous of her. But her name is Shelly, and she lost her 
mother and her sister in a car accident when she was 20 years old. They were in the same car and they both died. And the sister was nine months pregnant at the time. And then a week later, Shelley's grandmother, overcome by the grief, passed away as well. And so just enormous grief for a 20-year-old young woman to experience the loss of a mother, sister, grandmother. And so, yeah, just Shiva is an interesting um, practice. You know, many people have heard of sitting Shiva, but it's this idea that in the week following the death and the burial, um, the family has visitors that come almost from, you know, sunrise to to sundown until it's time to go to bed, um, where people just come and sit with you and be with you and are present with you. And kind of the rules of, of Shiva that people kind of take their cues on how not to be with the bereaved based on Job's friend, you know, from the book of Job and the Bible from their, you know, this would be their holy text. So they would, they would say that the friends of Job were intrusive. They, they asked too many questions. They tried to give a theological explanation for why Job had suffered so much, you know, for listeners that aren't aware, Job is like, you know, the, the, the king of suffering. He is um, basically if, grief had an archetype, it would be Job. He lost all his possessions, all 12 of his children and his health in like one fail swoop. And so the whole book of Job are is basically his friends coming to him and explaining to him how, well, you weren't a good enough person. And so this is why God allowed this to happen to you. Or this is why God allows people to suffer. Or this is what you should do in reaction to your suffering. And they're basically just lecturing him. And so that's kind of the, the, the folks kind of take their cues on what not to do from the friends of Job. And they basically, the practice is to just to come and sit silently. If the bereaved are talking and sharing stories, then the visitors will share stories. If the if the bereaved are crying, then the visitors will cry. If the bereaved are laughing and, you know, finding some moments of joy in their sorrow, then the visitors will laugh. And you, 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 you follow the lead of the mourner. Um, and I, I just think that's such a beautiful, Shelley told me that what we in America, you know, in America, you typically, you have a visitation, maybe the night before the funeral, it's like two hours long. And it's basically like a receiving line and people just file through and they greet you and share their condolences. And it's done in like two hours. She said that what we cram into two hours, they stretch over a week long period so that people can really, really invest their presence and conversation and support with the family in that seven day period. And I think that's really, really um, just beautiful. The, the needs of the bereaved are all met. You always bring food when you come to visit, you, you bring any kind of household needs that they might have. Uh, all of the needs are provided for, um, for the mourning family. And I just think that's a, that there was a lot about kind of Jewish practices that Shelley shared with me that really impacted me. Um, you know, the lighting of a candle um, on the anniversary of the death and um, things like that, that just really left an impression on me. And I thought were very rich. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they very, they, they, they are. Um, I'd heard of it before. I'd heard someone talk about this practice before. Um, and it, it deeply impacted me. And obviously it's important not to culturally appropriate and, and to acknowledge where these rituals come from. Um, and I think the lesson is like that, you know, all these cultures have rituals for grief, which mean a lot to them and which help people process grief um, in such powerful ways. And 
we need to rediscover ways to do that. Um, right. On our own, in a way. Um, and it's funny, actually, that when you talk about Shiva, that I, I mean, obviously, I didn't have that because I'm not Jewish. Um, but I had an experience on the day my mother died where I went out to see friends in the evening. Uh, my dad told me to go out because he knew I needed to get out and get out of my head. Um, yeah. I went to a bar, a pub, a British pub, with with some friends of mine who I'd grown up with and who knew my knew my mother and had uh, met her many times and had a relationship with her, but were my friends. And really, we just we just hung out at the pub and drunk and. And didn't get drunk, but we had drinks and um, we chatted and we laughed and we and they said they sent their condolences and said they were sorry and asked how I was doing and and all of that. But it was, but it wasn't this kind of really solemn moment. It was just a moment of almost acknowledging what had happened, but celebrating her life, I guess. Um, and acknowledging yeah. that it has to go on as, at the same time and that I can't, that sitting in one place and dwelling on it is not healthy either. Um, but it felt like a ritual. It right. felt like something that that you do when somebody dies, that, that you kind of go and be with people that love you and will support you and help you in that moment when you need it and giving you what you right. need. Um, it was like, like, like a, almost like a created ritual um, that I had. Yeah. 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 I remember you sharing that. I don't know if it, you may have shared that in one of the podcasts where you talked about your own grief story. I can't remember, but I I remember that story. And I remember when I, yeah, when I heard it, when I heard you say that you went out to the pub when your mom, it actually made me feel so much better (laughs) because I, I remember shortly after my sister died, I was like, I want to go back to work. Like, I, like, you know, there's some people that like, that's the last thing they want to do. But I was like, I just want to go in for a day. And people were like, why do you want to go into work? And I'm like, well, because all my friends are at work and I just want to be with people. Like, I just want to be with people, you Mm -hmm. know? Uh, And like, yeah, that kind of, I think so often in culture now, people leave you alone when you're in grief. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because people don't know what to say. They don't want to bother you. They're worried they'll say the wrong thing. And again, this is why a grief ritual is so amazing. A communal ritual is that it gives the community. It doesn't just help the bereaved. It helps the condolers. It helps the community know how to comfort um, a griever. And and I yeah, I, I think in many ways, I mean, I'm fortunate to have friends that knew better than to leave me alone, but I, I just didn't want to be alone. I wanted to be around other people and I wanted to have the support of friends. And so often grievers are left alone and that's not healthy, you know? Mm, that's right. Yeah. And there is an element of, you know, giving people space and allowing them to, For sure. Uh, that That's important. But um, also just knowing that someone is there if you need them is, is really, really helpful um and actually what i learned from my experiences and which i used later on when i had friends who lost loved ones is that just sending a text to somebody saying i'm really really sorry um um, i love you if you need me for anything i'm here just let me know um Yeah. yeah and that's it and i did that for a couple of times with people who lost loved ones and it's just for me it was just like saying look i'm i'm here if you, if you need me i'm here 
But if you don't That's need right. me, don't worry. Right. But if you do right. need me, I'm here. And I'm thinking of you. And I'm sending love to you. And I see you. I see what's happened to you. And I'm sorry. And it just, I think that, I mean, I know that when my mother died, if people had done that for me, it would have been like, oh, good. That's good. I know I've got people. Yeah. If I need someone, I can just text, ring, whatever. Um, and I'm not on my own. And that can be, and that's that's, that's, yeah. that's a bit of advice for people that you know, just just a message like that can mean everything to somebody, and they may not ever that's right. to you, they may not acknowledge it even, but if they they will see it, and it will it will make yeah. something to them. So, yeah, I think that's great advice, Jane. Like great practical advice to just say, like to yeah, we had friends that you know when I first got back home after my sister died, they said whatever night you want us to come over, we will bring a meal. We will get a babysitter for our kids and we'll stay as long as you want. You know? And it was like, they said, you just let us know when that needs to be. And so I was like, all right, let's do it Tuesday. And in just, you know, kind of giving some control in some ways to the mourner, but to also making sure they know what you're willing to do and, and how you're willing to be there, yeah. um, I think is, is so important and, and so practically helpful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it really is. And yeah, I mean, I was lucky I had my dad around, and he was really. I didn't. I, I. I didn't. I don't know much of the actual logistics of everything that happened. I don't really remember. Um, I don't yeah. remember organizing the funeral. I remember planning the actual service. I don't remember organizing any of it. I don't remember. He was doing all of that, and I was lucky that he was around to do that. Um, mm. And I just stayed at his house for a while because I was a bit of a mess. Um, that that whole yeah. weekend is a bit of a bit fuzzy, to be honest. Um, yeah, but it would be, wouldn't it? Um, uh, it yeah, but sure, I think that's normal. Around who are just there to support you, um, if you need them, can mean everything. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm curious to hear from you because this is something. I wish I'd sorted out before I wrote the book, but alas, it's too late. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to kind of wrap my brain around what, what a ritual is, you know, because we all have, we use the word ritual a lot now, pretty commonly, you know, I, I have my morning coffee ritual, people say, or I have my wellness ritual, which is, I don't know, a moment of mindfulness and exercise in the morning. And, and I, part of me is like, well, that's a habit. Like, Hmm. habits to me are a little bit different than rituals. Yeah. So I don't know. Let me, what's your, how would you define a ritual? And there's no right answer. Cause like I said, I'm still sorting through it. Yeah. I know what you mean. There is a difference between a, between a habit and a ritual, a ritual. For, it's kind of more specific. It's more, it's a, there's an element of structure to it. Um, and it has a purpose. Um, mm -hmm. I think like, um, and it can be mm. quite, still be quite broad within that boundary. It's not like it doesn't have to be really, really rigid, but there has to be a kind of almost a a, a kind of structure to it, even if it's just a loose structure. And there has to be kind of a specific purpose mm -hmm. for it. Like, um, yeah. you know, like when you're doing meditation or you're mm -hmm. doing silent prayer, which I've done before, um, and it was another really great way to process stuff actually i'd advise it recommend that to people um but if you're and you're setting yourself up like in a space to do it 
that's that's a ritual. But yeah, like going and getting a cup of coffee in the morning. That's that's a habit. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, and yeah, and I, you know, and I, it's. I mean, it's difficult to implement like regular rituals in your life because the, the world we live in right now, everyone's so busy, and we're doing right. so much other stuff. You know, like the pandemic right. and other things that, uh, and we're all so tired and burned mm. out a little bit that it's difficult to kind of set aside those moments for rituals. Right. Um, but they can be quite simple and they can be like five or 10 minutes long. Right. Um, like setting up some candles and maybe some crystals or like a whatever and, and some incense, or whatever, and getting something to read or meditate on um, or reflect on or putting some music on to, um, and just slowing your breathing down. That can be a ritual, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, reading a short prayer or a poem you know, within that context it can be a ritual. It can be with a purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, even I need to get more of those in my life. I know that because when I, because if you can get those into your life, that does, that helps give a bit of balance and structure to your day-to-day life. Yeah. And it helps center you. Um, obviously it's important to practice rituals with an element of self-care because some, and not in a way that is going to harm you or that's going to bring you into tra- bring you into places where you're triggered or you right, know, that's right. or anything like that. You need to be careful of that. So maybe get your advice of th- get get therapist advice as well when you're preparing mm-hmm. rituals. That's a good good thing to do. Um yeah. But, yeah, I do think we need more rituals. Um and we need to kind of enshrine what rituals are <laughs> over, yeah. over daily habits. Um yeah, because and that's something we don't have in our culture. We don't have rituals. Western culture yeah. have rituals, really. I mean, not not in the same way. And we have it, right. but it's not in the same. It's not got the same. It doesn't feel. They don't feel as sacred. It doesn't feel. These are things that are really, like these are really really important. And yeah, you know, and I love what you said about the purpose behind it. You know, and that's maybe what really sets a ritual apart from a habit is that you there's an assigned deeper meaning a kind of a in some ways a a desired outcome for the the practice of you know whatever it is and and the the other thing to me that seems to set rituals apart from habits are that habits can be done individually and i i do believe rituals can be done individually but they seem to be most powerful when they're practiced communally when kind of the community Mm -hmm. has decided this is the purpose of this activity. This is, this is the meaning behind what we're doing and we're going to do it together. Um, one of the rituals that I wrote about is a, a ritual called decoration day. Does, does the term decoration day mean anything no, to you? I've heard of this one. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's so it's, so it's kind of interesting because um, it's, it's a ritual that it, is primarily practiced in Appalachia. So for in what I mean by Appalachia, it is a part of the Southern United States where the Appalachian mountain region is. So it's going to be places like Tennessee, Northern Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina. This is where I'm from. This is where my roots are is Appalachia. And so this practice of decoration day is practiced in that part of the country. 
kind of stereotypically Appalachia is known for being a little bit isolated. People moved into the hills and, you know, the mountains in the 1700s and they kind of got stuck there. <laughs> and so um, there's kind of seen as being a little bit isolated, maybe a little bit backwards. There's some kind of negative stereotypes. But interestingly, this practice of Decoration Day, which is essentially um, decorating the graves of lost loved ones, it's practiced in that part of the country in the U.S. And it's also practiced in Liberia. So interestingly, when, um, you know, people freed slaves were sent back to Liberia uh, because they, they believed that that was one way to deal with emancipated slaves is to send them back to West Africa. We could have a whole conversation about that and, and mm-hmm. whether that was right or wrong. Um, but the, the, these freed slaves and free people of color took the practice of Decoration Day back with them to West Africa. And then Decoration Day kind of morphed into a tradition that has um, tribal uh, tribal grief rituals mixed into it. So it's really interesting. I had a really interesting conversation with my Liberian friend about how Liberian Decoration Day is different, but similar to Decoration Day in Appalachia. But essentially, Decoration Day is where um, people would come to these small family graveyards. So what we have in Appalachia are a lot of smaller graveyards that started as family graveyards and then maybe kind of extended to the community. So my family, on my mom's side, there's a family graveyard that includes you know, her great-grandmother, great-great-great-grandmother, my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, and all of the cousins and all of the aunts. And it's, you know, the, the pretty small plot, but it's our extended family and, and other families that intermingled. And it's the family graveyard. It's Burleson Cemetery. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these smaller cemeteries scattered throughout the mountains in Appalachia. And so once a year, um, the community would come and they would decorate the graves with, um, they would make uh, crepe out of crepe paper, they would fold intricately fold these papers into flowers, and they would take these kind of flower crepe paper flower um, creations and put them all over the graves, and they would clean the graves, and they would come together once a year for. Um, remembrance. And and they would have singing, they would have prayer, they called it dinner on the grounds, which is essentially they'd have a picnic at the cemetery all together. And each family cemetery picked a different day uh, of the year to do it. And so if you had some of your people buried in that family cemetery, you'd go to Decoration Day maybe in, you know, May. But then Decoration Day in the other family cemetery was maybe in July. So you'd go to that Decoration Day. And it became this huge community event where people would come together, mm-hmm. remember the dead, and share their own stories. And so it's interesting because I think about the the ritual or the practice of going to my grandmother's grave. So my grandmother is buried in the cemetery. I can go there by myself and I can bring flowers and I can have a moment where I remember her and cry and mourn. But how much more powerful is the ritual when it's done in community together and we're yeah. all there together? All my cousins would be there together mourning my great grand or my my grandmother, my great grandmother, um, and they'd be mourning their cousins and their aunts and everyone that's kind of communally in the cemetery together. Um, and so I, it's interesting because we talk about rituals going away. I had been invited to Decoration Day at the family cemetery for years, and I always I didn't 
really know what it was at the time. And I said, that sounds weird. I'm not going to go to that. Like, what is what is this weird practice that you hillbillies do? <laughs> and so I, I never went. Well, then I started getting interested in grief rituals and I was so excited to go to Decoration Day. Well, they have actually stopped practicing it. The practice is slowly dying out across Appalachia as families move away. And so people are buried in large cemeteries and bigger cities. And so they've actually stopped practicing Decoration Day at my family cemetery in in the traditional way. And I was actually part of I was part of the reason the tradition died out, if that kind of makes sense, because Mm -hmm. I didn't think, you know, growing up, I didn't think it was important to go to Decoration Day. I thought it was a strange practice. I didn't know what it was. And, and because of people like me being uninterested in the traditional ritual, it has died out. Um, it's, it's practiced in very few cemeteries now across Appalachia. It's still going strong in West Africa, but not in, in the place where it originated. So mm-hmm. that would, but anyway, I, I'm just br- tying that into the whole concept of communal ritual and the power of doing something with family with community members as opposed to just doing it your own on your own a lot of us go to the graves of our loved ones and put flowers on them but rarely do we have a celebration where the whole family comes to decorate an entire cemetery together and sing and eat and remember and cry together it's a really really beautiful practice that's dying out now wow that sounds amazing and and you're right i agree with you about these community rituals that we that we need you know um in particular around things like grief and and loss and um and celebrating life and yeah we've we've somehow lost that in in the last hundred last hundred years i think Um, yeah you know capitalism and um, all that kind of thing Um, right it just kind of a lot of things have just taken that away and it's um you know kind of it's part of our humanity as well these like these rituals and these expressions uh, grief is part of our humanity expressing our emotions expressing trauma expressing this stuff individually and collectively is is part of being human and it's and we need to yeah like i say we need to bring it back we need to keep talking about the importance of these rituals that's why this book you've written is so so important because um it will remind us of the importance of rituals when it comes especially to grief but also to big moments in in our community in our families in our um you know that that we that we do life together that we're there for each other that it's not this individualist world that we that we need each other and we need to support each other and that that's really really important that's right yeah and i you know i tried to get to the bottom of i mean as any much as anyone could like why why have these rituals gone away like how do you explain what's happened to them and and so much of it is due to the fact that you know we people don't die at home anymore um they die at the hospital um, and, and bodies are not prepared at home by family members and neighbors. They're, they're, it's all kind of been outsourced to the funeral industry. Um, you know, morticians and um, funeral directors now kind of take care of death for us. Um, and, and, and that's not, I'm not saying that's entirely a bad thing. I think it's good that people 
go to a hospital to die because they might not die if they go to the hospital. You know what I mean? Like people go to the hospital and sometimes the hospital saves their life and gives them years of their life back, you know, and, and that's good. But it, but part of these rich, part of the reason I think rituals flourished in, um, you know, in the, the 1800s, 1700s and, and prior is because people had to come face to face with illness and death in their own homes you know, you would, if your elderly parent or grandparent was dying, you would tend to their needs in the home and they would die at home. You'd prepare their body at home and do everything that was needed to get them ready to be buried. And they're, so that is such a raw and emotionally charged task. There had to be rituals, I think, surrounding it to help you just get through it. Um, but now, we tend to think of death as something that happens outside of our normal spaces of living. It's, it's just mm-hmm. been outsourced, you know, um, people die in a very sanitized hospital setting and then they are taken care of by a professional, you know, funeral director. And, and I'm, that's not all bad. I, I one of my, some of my parents' best friends are actually funeral directors, and, and I respect the work they do. I don't blame them for our loss of rituals. But because it's been outsourced in that way, we can just kind of relegate death to a thing that doesn't really happen to us. We don't really have to deal with it. It's taken care of. We can show up to the funeral. We can step away from it. But you can't do that with grief. You know, death may have been outsourced, but grief cannot be outsourced. Uh, And so I I think that's part of the reason why. I mean, there are lots of reasons that I write about in the book for why I think we've lost some of these rituals. But that seems to be one of the most fundamental reasons is because doctors and undertakers take care of death for us now, you know, but they cannot take care of our grief. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I love that. What you said, uh, you can't outsource your grief. Um, <laughs> um, oh, that we could, and and I think yeah. sometimes we think we can with yeah. with therapy, with mindfulness, and I am all for therapy. Like I go every other week. Like I'm a huge fan of it. But it, no amount of therapy, mindfulness, wellness, and and I would say to people of faith, no amount of spiritual practices can ease the the, the just the pain of grief. Like that's part of what it is to love someone and lose someone is to feel this awful, terrible, uncomfortable feeling. Now, therapy, I think, can certainly help you give you tools to deal with it in a way that's healthy, um, can give you tools to know how to process it and move forward with it and bring you some comfort. But it's still going to be hard and it's still going to be yours. You can't give it to your therapist. It's going to be it's, it's going to be yours. And so just setting that expectation for people to say, yeah, you're going to have to work through this. This is your burden to carry. So let's figure out how to carry it, you know? And yeah, and is that exactly. Let's let's figure out some tools. Let's tool, figure out some practices. Let's figure out some um, and support networks, that, communities that can help you do that. Um, yeah, absolutely agree with all of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And all of those things are important, you know, therapy, practices community they they all are needed i think to help us process grief and trauma um, right but we have to do the work um, that's right they're not like they're not ways we can outsource our grief they're tools to help us process 
um, and almost I, I took I took I talk about befriending our grief almost um, mm. in relationship with our grief and understanding it and learn to live with grief and because it will always be with us in one sense so yeah yeah, um, yeah. I'd love to ask you what a question another question I have for you is just how why do you because I'm seeing more conversation now about grief like people are talking about it we've talked about this it's like showing up in some of our series like WandaVision and, you know, even Ted Lasso, I, which I'm, again, I feel terrible. I haven't watched Ted Lasso either, but I hear it's all, it's actually a story about grief and people dealing with grief. So I feel like it's starting to become normalized to talk about grief and tell stories of grief. Why, why do you think that is? I feel like it's starting to become part of the conversation again. Like what's instigated that, I guess. Uh, that, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. And yeah, it is coming up a lot more. And I mean, I, I, I mean, when talking about the comic book kind of movies, like I, I have studied these these movies for my whole life, and like when you, most most of these stories are about a character's response to grief. Um, if you yeah. Know, yeah. I mean, like the first big super superhero movie was Superman seventy eight, which is one of my favorite movies, and the whole story pivots on the death of his father mm. right so after that he says oh he says i all these things i can do or all these powers and i couldn't save him and then right um i know it's profound right and right at the end of the movie that comes back it's like then the person that he's fallen in love with dies yeah. and he and the first time you see the character get emotional in the movie that's why it's so powerful because he enters mm. it and it's like he's just standing there and he does that kind of he literally does that wailing thing almost as he just he yeah. flies into the sky and he's screaming like like this is just like no like i'm not gonna let this happen and then he gets his well, then he's gets his kind of flashbacks to all the things that his 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 birth father from another planet and his earth father who died said to him about his purpose and and then he remembered his own words about all these things he can do and you know that he couldn't save his dad and then he goes off and turns back time and saves him and so the whole thread of that movie is is his response to grief it's and i realized everyone he saves in that movie is his dad Oh, uh, right. It's yeah. Dad, right. And there's no, there's no violence in the movie at all. And there's no, not one punch is thrown in the movie at all. It's all about him saving wow. people and saving lives. And I realized when I, when I saw that thread, I thought, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, wow. that's it. You see, and this is 1978. This was yeah. Me, right. You know, it's something you said has made me think, I wonder if this is part of it. Is that like, don't, I, and I'm, again, I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to articulate this well, but didn't like modernity and, you know, lowering death rates and vaccines developed in the twenties and thirties and forties back when everyone was super thankful for vaccines. <laughs> um, yeah. Didn't that make maybe people feel like we're in control? Like ultimately, like yeah. if death happens, it's accidental. It's rare. Like so many people live to be 30, 40, 50 years old without even going to a funeral because 
death, while it happens to everyone, has started to feel very uncommon. Like it's the most uncommon, common thing in the world. And, and I don't know, it just seems like we have this illusion of control because of all the scientific innovations and, you know, um, the Internet, the world at our fingertips, you know, and it kind of gives us this idea that we're we can somehow save ourselves, that we're in control. But as you mentioned, you have this realization that no matter all the power that we have, like there's nothing I could do to have saved the babies that I lost, to have saved my sister, like life even though it might seem very controlled in this modern Western world that we live yeah, in, is very it's, precarious. It's it so is. precarious. It is. And, but, I mean, these stories that I've loved my whole life, have, have all, a lot of them are about that, you know. Um, and I think it's become more – I think we've started to notice it more because, because we're going through this pandemic. Yes. And all of us are grieving. In some, in yes. some way, we're grieving the life that we had before the pandemic. We're grieving all these little rituals that we used to have, all these little routines that we used to have that we don't yeah. have anymore. These things we used to be able to do or take for granted that we can't anymore. And and it's it's and so I think we're more attuned to these messages. Yeah, I think people who People who are aware of what is going on and are in tune with what's going on are aware that this is this is happening. Yeah, and it um, feels like that illusion and that facade of control, we're starting to finally see through it. The, yeah, I, the pandemic proved that it was always a facade, that it was always an illusion, that any any at any moment, any sense of control we have can be completely obliterated. And I actually feel like I was kind of well-equipped for that kind of existential interruption that the pandemic introduced because I had figured out the year before it was the year before that I lost my sister and that, um, you know, I had some, some of these tragic events and I was just like, yep, I know in my bones, like I know experientially that life is not in your control and that tragedy and disruption and loss can happen just like that and, and catch you completely by surprise. And so, you know, when, the global pandemic broke out. I was like, yep, that sounds about right. I just was like, I was prepared for it kind of emotionally. And that, in that way, I'm grateful. But for some people, it was certainly very startling, you know? Yeah, it was. And, uh, and I knew when the pandemic started, things would never be the same again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I knew there would be a grieving that went on. I think I even wrote something at the time about this is going to be the great unrolling of, of things that. Yeah. I've not yet been seen. And yeah, the word for that is actually apocalypse. Mm, yeah, that's We're right. We're things that have not yet been seen. Um, right. And that's kind of what's happened. <laughs> that's um, right. And it's going to be really important when this is, I say this is over, because it won't be going back to how it was, but when the worst of it is over and we're, coming, we're going back to some semblance of routine and, you know, life, um, that we will have to start processing this stuff. That's right. Everyone will have to start processing this stuff. And I guess my, my fear, I guess, is that people won't. Because it feels, yeah. what it feels like is it's like an opportunity. That all of us now yeah. have a chance to do the work on our grief. And if we all did it, I think that would change all of us, but it would also change us in terms of 
how we connect with each other, how we do community. It would um, it would change things politically as well. Yeah. Um, because so much of what ha- so much of what happened in 2016 was people who had tons of unresolved yeah. grief, loss, whatever, um, venting their frustrations. Um, that's right. That's what that was. That's what happened. That's why they couldn't deal with with the defeat in when yeah. one because they just couldn't compute it in their heads that that yeah. they were finally actually having to deal with the loss they'd already had, right? So, yeah. but yeah, so the, um, this is kind of my dream, I guess. This is what I would love to happen. It probably won't happen. And what's sad about that is that when people are carrying a lot of grief and it's not processed, that's that can cause trouble for other people. That can oh, yeah. lead to hurt people, hurting people, and yeah, and we don't want that as a as a as a society, as a, as a as a planet. Yeah. Um. So it's really important more than ever to to learn how to practice grief and express grief and name our grief and have rituals for grief, which again is right. why book is so so important. I'm really glad you've written. Yeah. It. So the, the world gives us so many reasons and so many options for ignoring it and distracting ourselves, and we we just we've normalized pleasant feelings and ostracized uncomfortable feelings. It's so funny. I tell people that the thing that has struck me so much about grief was the uncomfortableness of it. And people are like, well, yeah, obviously grief is uncomfortable. And I'm like, no, but really it is, it is deeply, it's like torture and there's no end to it. And I'm not used to experiencing pain like that. If I have a headache, I can take a Tylenol. If I, you know, if I'm hungry, I have easy access to food. If I'm cold, I flip a switch and the heater comes on. You know, it, it's like we don't we don't even know how to. I mean, that's why I actually, you, James, you can see I have, I have a fire in the fireplace behind me. I actually yeah, yeah. like the ritual of having to build a fire in order to get warm because it reminds me that discomfort cannot always be immediately rectified, that sometimes it takes time. But why would I do that if I could just immediately numb, if I could immediately create some palliative form of comfort? Really dealing with your grief and engaging deeply in rituals forces you to confront the pain, to absorb the pain, to marinate in that pain for a while. And it's deeply uncomfortable. But I think it creates long-term opportunities for healing that just aren't there when you ignore it. So I don't know if the world's going to get on board with it, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I hope so. Like, I hope we all have find the courage to c- confront these things. Me too. Me too. And that's why these, these conversations are so important and why these books like yours are so important. And, yeah, all we can do is keep talking about it, keep practicing it, and hope that, you know, that things change eventually. Um, yeah. That's right, yeah. And you're doing great work with this topic, James. Every every at every turn, I see you normalizing grief and normalizing um, pain and and normalizing loneliness for people that are lonely. I just think you. I know that's scary to do that sometimes and have that level of vulnerability, but it's a gift to to the world when you do that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so um everyone you can pre-order amanda's book um a hole in the world it's yeah you can pre-order it now wherever you get pre-orders you can follow amanda on twitter and everything like that um 
Uh, <laughs> what's your handle on Twitter? It's Amanda Held Opelt, and I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not great at Twitter. I mean, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm on and off. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you'll see me fairly active on there, and sometimes you'll see me, um, uh, a bit absent. But I, I, it's actually been amazing. You're a good uh, example of someone that I've found on Twitter and have connected to in real life, and it's been a real blessing. So, um. Social yeah. media platforms are not all bad when used wisely. <laughs> Absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming on, um, Amanda. It is such a privilege to talk to you always um, and to listen to you. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. And um, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>